0: Hey, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. My guest today is Dr. Tyler Gibb. Dr. Gibb is an associate professor and co-chair of the Department of Medical Ethics, Humanities, and Law at Western Michigan University Homer Stryker School of Medicine. He completed a clinical ethics fellowship at the University of California, Los Angeles Health System Ethics Center and completed his PhD in healthcare ethics from St. Louis University, and obtained a law degree with a certification in health law from the St. Louis University School of Law. Dr. Gibbs' research is interdisciplinary and wide-ranging. He has authored dozens of peer-reviewed publications, and these examine the intersection of health law and clinical ethics, medical neurotology, the politics of medicine, medical education, and professional misconduct and professionalism in healthcare. care. His teaching experience includes coursework in clinical ethics at the undergraduate and graduate level, in nursing and medical schools, and at the GME level. He regularly speaks at international and national academic conferences and has extensive hands on experience in clinical ethics consultation over the last decade. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Tyler Gibb.
1: Hey, Tyler, how are you? Great, Leah, how are you?
0: I'm doing well. I'm happy it's summertime, and uh, finally seeing maybe some light at the end of the pandemic tunnel. So, yeah, feeling feeling pretty good,
1: yeah. it's the weather has taken a turn for the better here in Michigan, so
0: yes, so much. Well, I appreciate you taking time. I know you're Uber busy. You told me you have three teenage daughters and you work full time, so i I don't know how I found time to work <laughs> when I think about it when I had kids and, you know, I don't know how you do that, but I yeah. appreciate you making time for this.
1: No, happy to be here. You know, I think the answer to your question is a good spouse.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. That's- Boy, I would, I would say a heck yeah to that one. Well, let's just start talking a little bit about you. Um, You told me that you had a law degree and a PhD in philosophy. So what are you doing in medical bioethics? How did yeah, that well, happen?
1: Yeah, it's um, you know, I get asked that question a lot. I get kind of side eyes sometimes when I'm walking through the hospital. So my role right now, so I'm the the co-chair of the Department of Medical Ethics, Humanities, and Law at uh, Western Michigan's Homer Stryker School of Medicine, and I've been here for about almost six years now. And my my role is as a you know as an instructor as a professor of of ethics and law and humanities basically all of the non science stuff that medical students get taught and also our our residents here in our programs but my 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 background is a, a little bit different even from other people who work in bioethics while within within medical schools and so as you said i'm i'm a lawyer by training. So I went to law school and did a PhD, both at the at the same time and both at St. Louis University, where I um, studied at the uh, Center for Healthcare Ethics and um, at the law school. And after that, I did a postdoc fellowship at UCLA, where I focused on clinical ethics, the clinical medical ethics. And the, the difference between those those two things are bioethics is generally seen as a, a very kind of academic theoretical, you know, talking about kind of big picture meta ethics questions, you know, what is life? What is death? How do we know, um, what we know about the the values and in medicine or in healthcare, or even just the, the application in biomedical sciences. But, so in, in clinical ethics, it's kind of a a subfield or a different field of, of study or specialization where I work as a consultant in the hospitals, acute care facilities and in, in, in the clinics where physicians or nurses or anybody from the healthcare team or even patients or family members can can call and ask for some some input or some recommendations or some analysis that deal with kind of the moral, sticky, ethical questions that come up in medicine.
0: So it sounds like bioethics, I envision sitting on a tall peak, cross-legged, kind of a swami and somebody's going to ask you the big questions of life and clinical ethics, you're in scrubs in the dark at night <laughs> on a pizza ICU unit.
1: <laughs> you know, that's not too far from it. I don't think that we do a lot of sitting on peaks. It's mostly sitting in my office surrounded by my books, which I is kind of my happy place. But definitely the, the the clinical side of what I do is is meeting with families, meeting with teams, and really trying to be useful, be effective, try to help people kind of see, uh, answer the questions about what should we do in, in any particular situation versus what can we do. So I think medicine and, and, and healthcare providers sometimes get too focused. On can we do this thing and and don't have a lot of time or aren't aren't forced into reflecting upon what what should we do in particular situations?
0: Well, I think we're all about doing for sure, and fixing, and sometimes not always stopping to think about that there are consequences to every behavior, any action that we do. And I did a podcast with a woman who's actually she's an attorney as well. And she started a, a project called the Tiny Poetry Project. And she writes poetry and narrative medicine after having her son who had chronic medical disease. And she she wrote a poem called My Tattoos. And it was about the the tattoos, the, the scars that her son had. And it was it was so impactful listening because it's like the things that we do that are everlasting on your body. And he had asked, like if a phlebotomist came in the room, he said, just count to three and then I'll be ready to, you know, before you poke me. And she said, sometimes they just wouldn't do it. And it was so painful when he didn't have any like locus of control. And Mm -hmm. so that, that um, kind of that, what can we do? What should we do? That's an interesting Mm -hmm. construct. Well, you know, when I think of bioethics, I think about, for example, being in the Peds ICU and having a really complex case, maybe a child who we're wondering if they have any brain function, end of life, are we going to stop the ventilator? That's sort of what I imagine, you know, an ethicist where you would come in and in in a situation like that, what, what would it look like if somebody called you?
1: So we do get, we get a lot of calls that deal with end of life situations, not just in the pediatric ICU, but, you know, in, in all of the ICUs or, so we, the way in which clinical ethicists operate really kind of varies uh, in between institutions and also between, you know, the ethicists themselves. The way that I was trained and the way that I approach it is really as a, as a consultant and as a facilitator, and in some some regards as a coach for the healthcare providers. So, not being a physician, not being clinically trained at all, it it's, it would be really inappropriate for me to walk into a room and start making any type of clinical recommendations. And so, I, I tell people often, you know, if your your question is, should we intubate this person or not? I have no idea. Right. And so I, we did not cover that in law school. We didn't cover that in my, my PhD program. So what I do and my approach, and I I tell people that my, my job is so much fun because I get to act like a three-year-old or a four year old all the time, because I just have to, if I ever get stuck, I just keep asking why, why is that the case? Why? And so when someone comes and says, should we intubate this child or not? My, my response is always, you know, why would you? why would you not? In what situation does it make sense? And then usually, through some dialogue, through some conversation, we can drill down to what is really challenging about any particular case. and And another question that I often ask is, why how is this question, how is this case? or how is this patient or this family member? How is it different from all the other really complicated cases you've had throughout your career? And sometimes, trying to articulate or trying to help healthcare providers articulate what is really nagging at them what is really troubling about this case is where a lot of my work kind of focuses on is helping articulate what that what that is or or what that means for that individual provider and so a- after we you know try to identify or drill down what's really kind of underlying the the ethical uh, conflict or the the tension in in the case or in the situation i really try hard to provide concrete meaningful next step recommendations because a lot of uh, a lot of my training is in the kind of the esoteric the really abstract you know what is autonomy or what is free will or what is dignity these types of big questions and i can tell you that when you're in the icu at night with nurses who are upset and physicians who are uncertain about what they're doing you know talking about aristotle is not helpful <laughs> in those situations <laughs> It, yeah. it
0: sounds a little bit, honestly, like you're a therapist. I mean, I hear you. You know, I hear you say saying things like, "Hmm, can you tell me more about that?" I mean, you're really mm-hmm. trying to hear what the what the concerns are, what the angst is about, and then help. I mean, do you come up with the solutions based on what you hear? Or is it kind of a group thing? How does that work?
1: So the way that we operate here, you know, my practice is I I am a what we would describe as a solo ethicist model, where it it is me, but there is a team behind me. And if it's a particularly complicated case, or if I'm uncertain about, you know, kind of what the recommendations ought to be, then there are a couple of other colleagues that I can sit down with and say, okay, here, here's what's going on. Here are my thoughts. What do you, what do you guys think about it? And through that, you know, it's a, it's a practice of, of humility because I don't think that I have all the right answers. (laughs) I don't think shoot. uh,
0: (laughs) they're probably hoping that you did.
1: You know what? Some people do call and hope that that is the case that I'm going to wave the magic ethicist wand and fix everything. You don't have Um, one of
0: those. No,
1: they haven't given it to me (laughs) yet. You Um, have to
0: work for a few more years. (laughs) I guess
1: so. But what we do and the way that I view my role is really supportive of trying to be supportive of the people who really have the responsibility of making these decisions. And what's been fascinating throughout my career is is watching how much really well-intentioned healthcare providers struggle with that kind of what ought we to do, what should we do type of question. Because, you know, physicians and nurses and, and, you know, everybody on the team is really expert and well-trained and competent in their areas but they're often very technical areas and they don't, they're not given the, the freedom or the space or the opportunity to reflect on, like, what is it that we're doing here? Are we really helping this individual? So I, I, I tell this story that I, I was at, when I was at UCLA, there was a you know, world famous cardiothoracic surgeon there. And I, I met him in his office and we were talking about transplantation and we we're talking about all the kind of the things that he does. And I noticed on his, on his desk, there was this really striking image or little statuette of a physician, obviously a surgeon, kind of all scrubbed up, but he was standing with his arms kind of folded in front of him. You know, when you're scrubbed up and you have, you know, the gloves and everything, you kind of fold your arms in front of you. And his head was bowed almost like he was in meditation or in prayer. And I asked him about it and I said, what, you know, what is this? And, you know, where did it come from? And why is it, why is it meaningful to you? And he said, you know, that the, the image is entitled moment of introspection. And he said, I, I I always try to do that before we start. He said, before I start wielding the surgical steel, I try to have a moment of introspection where I think, okay, I'm about to do something to this person that almost nobody else in the world could do. And am I healing in this moment? Am I a healer in this moment? And I think that at, at our hearts, healthcare providers really want to be that. They want to answer yes to that question. But yeah. sometimes the, the institution or the 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 system itself or you know, being caught up in the day-to-day practice of medicine interferes with that or prevents that in some way.
0: I love that it's it kind of fits with the, you know the the poem about before he creates the tattoo, he's mm-hmm. thinking about, is this the right one? Is this the right thing? And mm-hmm. that being, you know, introspection taking a minute, I think of a couple things One, we we created a provider burnout prevention group to try and, you know, help us as, you know, a peer support when something awful has happened. I mean, many, many things happen that are bad. Some are hor- some are h- horribly tragic, and then some are just awful and frightening. So we try and respond. And one of the things that we kind of have tried to help teams de- develop is the golden pause, you know, that when there has been A death is for everybody to stop after the death and have a moment to, you know, think about this person and that, you know, this was a human being who had a, you know, mother, brother, father, child, whoever. And that's been kind of a a nice thing. I think when people running codes can stop and do that, I also think about Atulka one day's being mortal, you know, the whole thing about having control over decisions and not just doing things because you can. You know that you know, like for example, chemotherapy that is totally experimental and makes you sicker than it, it's really not providing relief. But how do you make those decisions and help patients with that decision? And how much do you include the patient and the families in your discussions?
1: It, it varies quite a bit. Sometimes the the angst or the 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 ethical conflict or, or murkiness is really kind of centered on the the team and the functionality of the team. And so there might be disagreements or situations in which, you know, one part of the team, the nursing part of the team, for example, and the physicians may not be on the same page. And so in those situations, when it's kind of a, a an intra-team conflict or intra-team issue, that involving the patients in that, it, well, it really wouldn't be very appropriate. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they, don't, they don't need to see how the sausage is made in some ways, right? And, and, and in including them or even documenting those types of conversations in the patient's medical record would probably might even undermine their their trust in the in their team which is exactly the opposite of what you want to do but there are other times when the it's almost a conversation exclusively with the patients or their family members about you know one of the questions that we get asked all the time is who should be making this decision for the patient if they're not able to make the, pay, the decision for themselves and we see this a lot in pediatrics I mean by by definition pediatric patients are, you know, not empowered under the law to make their own medical decisions, except for you know certain circumstances, which you know are pretty well established. And and then we we get into questions about okay, if it's not this patient, then who should be making decisions? And how do we decide who should be making decisions? And what if there are two siblings who are in you know, in conflict and disagree about what we should do for their their loved one? And so those types of questions about decision, decision-making and, and who should be making decisions and how are good decisions made are really things that we deal with quite often.
0: It's the, the more you talk about it, the more I'm thinking about all these possible scenarios. I'm, I have two older parents that live with me now and they're, you know, 90 and, you know, we've had those conversations doing advanced directives and, you know, I have in my head what I think, you know, what I would want, you know, and it may not be exactly, and my parents are very different what they want. So, yeah, it, it's an interesting thing that th- those decision things don't go away no matter what age you are. I think of it, it, a thing that came up as an AAP is kind of looking at policies and things, but one of them was what do you do in a situation where the parent doesn't want to tell the patient what's going on and wants to withhold information? for whatever, you know, you, you know maybe you're going to, this is terminal, or I don't want to tell them the results of that. And how do you deal with that? And I would guess that happens with adults too. And also that there may be cultural overlays, like in our culture, you know, we just don't do that. Have you run into that before?
1: Yeah, not infrequently. And it, it really challenges healthcare teams in a number of different ways. So that type of particular question about what can we, or what should we withhold from the patient? Because the way that we practice medicine here in the United States is very different, like you, like you alluded to, than other cultures. There was a really good movie um, that came out in the fall called The Farewell that focuses on a, a, a Chinese family that where grandma living back in China had some sort of really bad diagnosis. I think it was a terminal cancer diagnosis. And the family, part of the family lives in the United States and is very kind of much more westernized than the 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 rest of the cousins and aunts and uncles who live back in China and the the movie was all about this kind of consternation this this conflict about what do we tell her and some people are some members of the family were very adamant about you know how could we not tell her everything right it's her body it's her life she has to have this information but then others were saying no I mean not only would it do harm to her but it would do harm to the entire family structure that it's it's antithetical to the way that we believe decisions about health ought to be made and so we we see that not infrequently and it's it's a challenge each case is a little bit different but the way that we approach it often is okay what is the in the best interest of this particular patient given their context given their community of, of family members and loved ones and sometimes it's it's very clear that withholding certain information even if it's a terminal diagnosis is really not only aligns with their values but also is something that would, would be beneficial to, to them within their worldview, within their family structure. But other times, it, those types of requests for withholding information are, are not viewed as, as helpful. And we, we've we been they're involved in cases where we've said, no, that's not the either the rationale that you're providing for that withholding or, or the way that we view this is, is, you know, we would be doing harm by withholding that. So that's kind of the the litmus test is, okay, who is, is the patient benefiting? And if it's not clear that the patient is benefiting, then we're, we're pretty skeptical about whether that is actually the the best course of action.
0: And that's when we should call you.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. That movie, it was with Aquafina, I remember. Yes. Um, and yeah, it was really, really interesting and really good. And yeah, I would highly recommend that for mm-hmm. sure. So I'm thinking, you know, again, I can see how bioethics would play into the hospital setting. And I guess particularly, I don't know how we could have this conversation without talking about COVID. What an awful challenge for these families where, you know, no one could go see them and nurses are having to tell, you know, the families, no, you can't be with your loved one as they're dying and have to be the one holding the hand. What was that like for you?
1: You know what? I mean, just like everyone else who's experienced this last, you know, year and a half, it's been challenging in ways that I could not have predicted. One thing that's been beneficial or been, you know, been kind of a positive ramification of the pandemic is is that now people are very much more aware of the ethical issues in medicine. When we talk about who should get a vaccine, you know, when we talk about who should be uh, in the front of the line to get a ventilator, or how do we protect healthcare workers when they are, you know, putting themselves at such risk for other people's benefits, and all of those questions—you know—who gets the, you know, what type of medication, and, and how do we allocate that in a fair way within this pluralistic, really complicated society that we live in? So describing what bioethics is has become a lot easier, but that doesn't mean that the answers are any more more readily available. So I think some of the big issues that have come out of the pandemic are obviously the allocation of scarce resources and not just scarce resources like personal protective equipment and stuff like that, but but also really precious resources. And the distinction that I make between scarce resources and, and precious resources are that scarce resources there may be scarcity but but at some point there's 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 going to be a, a surplus or we're going to catch up and that demand is going to be gone and we saw that with masking right at the very beginning masking and gloves and and protective gowns that stuff was in in really short supply to the to the point where they were limiting the number of people who could respond to a cardiac arrest within the hospital because there wasn't enough gown there weren't enough gloves there weren't enough masks for the entire team that we usually have go rushing into a, in, into a room to perform the CPR. So, so I think, so th- those would be scarce resources, whereas like precious resources are, are things that I think are inherently life-saving in, in a way. So for example, over the summer, there was uh, use of uh, a medication called remdesivir. I'm not sure uh, you recall that. And it was yep. really, really scarce. It was quite effective for certain patient populations. And, uh, it got to the point and it has to be administered kind of in a very narrow window. So you have to make decisions about who is at the top of the list and who's not going to get the medication very quickly. And you know, I can, t- I can tell you, it, we, there were situations where we had a number of patients who all would have qualified and we had, you know, two or five vials of this medication that would likely save this person's life. And, you know, putting them into a, basically into a hat and pulling out a a name to save their life was a, you know, profoundly jarring experience for somebody who, you know, like me, that sometimes I question my own, my own role here in, in in the, on the healthcare team. So, so that, those are some of the things that we dealt with a lot during the, the pandemic, but also even very basic questions about, you know, when is it okay for someone to, to put their own interests above other people's interests or when is it okay to put my political beliefs above someone else's physical well-being or you know how do we make sure that patients are not dying alone in the in the hospital when you know that's that's a really hard way not only for for the patient and the patient's family but also the healthcare providers watching people die alone and f- frequently in, in 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 those situations is challenging in in a whole bunch of ways. It's emotionally challenging. It's physically challenging. It's also creates kind of an identity crisis for yeah. providers.
0: Absolutely, because that's, that is, not, that's
1: I, not yeah.
0: I'm I'm supposed to save lives and I can't. And not only mm-hmm. can't I, but I can't. It it may not seem fair. Um, how am I supposed to make these like crushing decisions? Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you do that? I mean it just hurts my soul even thinking about what that must be like and you know I think about those scenes that you saw in Italy I mean those those folks and boy I think this last year if nothing else has been just this incredible examination of our humanity mm-hmm. and and where the pitfalls are and w- when we fall down when we're tired and have had enough you know, and fear. I mean, fear just drives so many. And
1: yeah, I I heard somebody describe, you know, kind of at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, that he said, uh, you know, this situation is like, you know, we've all been swimming around in the shallows, and the tide goes out, and now that the tide's out, you can see who's been swimming around naked and who hasn't been. And those, <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and and I get, I thank you for the work that you do in those situations because I'm sure there must be times when you go home and and it's painful and you're, you know, can't get those thoughts and ideas and scenes and people out of your head um, mm-hmm. wrestling with those those decisions. So I, I appreciate the work you do. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about, because my practice has primarily been in the outpatient setting. And, you know, we have lots of, uh, it, they're not quite those sorts of decisions. Most of the time, it's not that much drama, but we have lots of kids with, you know, chronic medical problems that are on home vents. The other thing that comes up as far as drama are custody battles, which, I mean, I've had some doozies where I literally had to have one of my staff come in every time, or we had to separate patient parents, you know, and just, uh, it's that, just the worst. I think adolescent confidentiality, you know, mm-hmm. what are we obligated to tell? What do we keep? What if it's not safe? I mean, those are some things, would those be situations where you could help?
1: Yeah. So we, we do get calls not infrequently from, from outpatient providers as well in the, in the clinical setting. And all of those cases that you described, those situations are, are case, cases and patients that, that I've seen and, and, and worked with. Other ones that we see often are, for example, when we're not sure what the standard of care might be. And we're, the provider is kind of left kind of operating in a, in a way in which they're uncertain about what the what good medicine is. And then the question becomes, how do we fully inform patients and their parents about what, what we think is best? How do we refer to people? How we refer people to other providers who might have more experience? And one example or one, one set of cases, one set of issues that, that I'm particularly interested in is how we as healthcare providers create a welcoming environment for people who are particularly transgender patients. How do we not just ourselves as the providers, but how do we create an, an environment within our office and with our office staff that these, you know, these patients, these children feel safe enough to come to us and disclose these things, even, even times that they've they've not been comfortable disclosing to their parents. And then all those questions about confidentiality and a pediatric patient, a child being able to consent to some some types of care without their parents' involvement and how do we kind of navigate that?
0: Yeah, it's that's super complicated for sure. I did a podcast with Dan Schumer, who's a endocrinologist over at the University of Michigan in their gender clinic. And he was so lovely in talking about you know, how to help families, you know, appreciate that, you know, this child is really struggling and our job is to be loving and supporting and affirming and that anything less than that puts them at risk. And, you know, is that what you want? And, and trying to work with that. And and we also um, have an adult endocrinologist here in Kalamazoo, who I think is just wonderful. Dr. Lager. He's amazing. I read his notes and I'm like, oh my God, this is the most It's just so kind Mm -hmm. and, you know, but, but I think you're right. And we're seeing more because I think people are beginning to be able to talk about it. I don't think that it's a, you know, a fad. I I just think that people are, are able to, there's more room to perhaps have this come to light. I don't know what your experience has been with that.
1: Yeah, I, I, I've been encouraged overall in the trajectory of, of how patients who are you know, either identify as transgender or are have that in the back of their mind and they're trying to figure out what that means for them. My experience has been that providers, most providers want to do, want to be affirming, want to be a safe space for them, but often they they just don't have the tools, they don't have the language, they don't have the words, they don't have the experience. And so they're really looking in ways to improve their own practice in order to benefit these children.
0: Well, and I do think for some, it is uncomfortable. I can think of a a gay couple that had a child. This was a long, long time ago. And um, one of the physicians just was like, I, I, I can't work with them. I don't know what to say. This doesn't feel right. Will you do it? And, you know, of course, you know, my, my goal is, you know, these are, you know, two, two women that want the best for this baby. And, you know, my job is to help the kids and to be there for the children. I think, also in circumstances where there's custody issues, I, often that's my my line is, I, I think we can all agree that we want the best for your child. And mm-hmm. each of you want the best for your child, but you're not coming at, I, I, and my job is to be an advocate for your child. And, you know, this, this kind of um, conflict that's happening is not helpful. So how can we work with that? But mm-hmm. So yeah, I've, a- I've met.
1: Yeah, I've met very few people in my life or my career that truly want to harm other people. I think it's a mostly unintentional or a you know a, a byproduct of some other priority that they're placing above the child or the patient. But I, I agree with you that sometimes we healthcare or medicine or physicians get instrumentalized by these other conflicts that are going on in ways that are unhelpful.
0: Yeah. And, and, and some of these, I, I mean, I can think of those situations where, Oh, you know, I can think of vaccine, you know, hesitancy or vaccine refusal. I mean, it's like my blood pressure goes up because it's like, Oh, you know, I'm going to have to have this conversation and it's so difficult. And I, it, it already makes you feel like you're in conflict right from the get go, you know, like you don't trust me you know, I'm recommending this because I feel like it's the best thing for your child and you don't believe me. How do we have this relationship? You know, I, what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. And specifically about custody issues, that, that's where I think my, my training in the law is, is, can be helpful is being able to identify, you know, what, what the law permits us to do, particularly with patient or parents of children who are in, in conflict, even, you know, Custody conflicts as well. Yeah, it's it's it can be challenging. And and what's helpful by having somebody like a clinical ethicist or or a social worker who's trained in, in a similar way is to help physicians navigate what their professional roles are. And and you know, I I, I really don't like the the term staying in your lane, but being able to identify your professional boundaries and you know, because we are we are healers and we're caregivers and we're empathic, we want the best for people. Sometimes we, we want to fix all of their problems and we want to be involved in the fix where, you know, if, if healthcare providers start trying to act like social workers and social workers start trying to act like lawyers and lawyers start trying to act like, you know, our, our professional boundaries can really get muddled. And that's where I think a lot of the, you know, a lot, a lot of the the good work that can be done may be squandered. And so helping to identify that when I'm, when I'm meeting with a physician who's struggling with this, I try to emphasize, okay, your professional obligation in this situation is to do X, Y, or Z. And I know that all these other problems arise and they're, they're there and they're impacting this, but you are doing your job. You're being a good physician. If you're able to do these things, if you're able to advocate for your patient and here's ways in which you can advocate for your patient, but you know, you, you are, as a, as a physician, you're, it's not your role to try to fix their housing insecurity, for example that's somebody else's role and we, we have to play a part in that, but, but you except can't take now that burden.
0: Except now we're supposed to ask about all that stuff. So it, mm-hmm. it does fall. I mean, and I think about, you know, what I've worked in a lot is um, suicide prevention in that it it is my job. If I ask the question and they say, yes, and I have some skills to be able to do that because we don't have enough psychiatrists. We don't, I mean, it does fall in our laps and it, and I think that does feel really uncomfortable, but I think you also have to kind of look at what are the other competencies that you can can learn when there's scarcity of help. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, they're at my doorway and I can send them off to the emergency room, but then they get discharged and they come right back. So right. like, I have to have some strategies, you know, but yeah, yeah I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that's where a lot of you know, particularly with mental health stuff, a lot of physicians push back because it's like, well, that's not my job. But honestly, anymore, it, it has become our job. I mean, which was honestly a part of the reason I started this podcast in the first place, you know, because I didn't have enough training in it. And so now I feel like I can reach out and offer voices like yours. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, su- it's such a great you know resource that you're providing to, to the community is being able to see a whole bunch of different uh, approaches or people with different backgrounds and, and how would they approach a situation and, and try to build up that capacity as well. But I also, I, I also think that, you know, I, I would love for a day to return when physicians could just be physicians and social workers could be social workers and, and you know that we had the adequate resources and there was, you know, from a societal level, enough investment and, and value placed on mental health, for example, and the ways in which Mental health is not something that physicians can tackle alone. It's not something that social workers can tackle alone.
0: No, I mean, it really, I mean, I think that's the beauty of integrated behavioral health. And I talk about it a lot on the podcast and have brought in many, many guests, you know, the idea of having a mental health clinician in your practice is life altering because then I can do what I can do. I can hand it off and let them do what they do best. And then we get back together and we do it together and it's great. And it's right there. I mean, they are at the hip and the patient doesn't have to go any place else. And now, honestly, they do a lot of it, can do it virtually. It is the most beautiful creation is integrated behavioral health. I cannot recommend more that people figure out how to do it, but it, you know, somebody needs to pay for it and yeah, need to value yeah. it. And you can't just say, oh yeah, mental health's important and then not, not, not pay for it. I mean, right. You know, so yeah, I think that's a really, really great point. Yeah, I, was, I,
1: I agree. I couldn't I I couldn't be a bigger fan of integrated behavioral health model.
0: Yeah, it's it's fabulous. And I'll put some links in the show notes to um one of my favorite textbooks um is integrated behavioral health in a primary care setting. And I will put the link to that. Well, just in closing, what are some of your takeaways for clinicians? I mean, what are the, you know, some top things that you want us to remember?
1: Yeah, I, I man, that's a, that's a, it's a tough, tough one to end on, Leah. I, there, there's so much that I, that we run into frequently that w- one thing that I, I don't know, it, let me think for a second.
0: <laughs> I wish that listeners could see, cause he's really like, he's struggling here. Yeah. <laughs> It's just, okay. There's a, you know day. no pressure. Yeah, and I mean yeah. if there's more than one thing, I mean one thing. I, I guess one of the ones I would think is call you. You know, you know. Yeah, yeah. Nice that you could help with this stuff.
1: Yeah, and and I think may, maybe that that there are people. So two thoughts. One that you are not. So the cases that keep you up at night, the ones that make you lose sleep, you are not the first person to have experienced th- this case. And you're, you're not alone. And it's not a failure. If you feel conflicted, if you feel morally, you know, adrift because of these types of, you know, what should we do? How do I best help my patient? You're not alone. And there's a team out there to help you. And if the resources aren't available in your clinic or in your mm-hmm. hospital or in your institution, reach out to, to other people, other professions, because that, that really, I I it was actually just this morning I read this article about physician suicide and how it's just been exacerbated through the pandemic. but it was just, I mean, I sat there in, in bed. it was like the first thing I, I read from Twitter this morning. but it was just so harrowing this um, the stories of providers who felt like there was no other option. And so I, so number one, that that you're not alone and that the the burden that you feel, can be shared and ought to be shared and uh, sometimes it takes being vulnerable and sometimes it takes being uh, proactive to to avoid that and I I think the other the other point and this is something that my my mentor the one who trained me in clinical ethics who I I could not be you know more thankful that he was at the heart of my training he said that ethics and actually any type of fiduciary or intimate relationship that you have with somebody, that there that there really are two goals. And, and medicine is definitely one of those. That the goal is to find your moral voice, to find what it is that drives you, that gives you meaning in your life, not just professionally, but, but, in, but in your lives. So to find your moral voice, and then to train yourself to hear the moral voice of other people. And because everybody, every patient, every colleague that you interact with, they're also on that same journey. That they are struggling or trying to articulate what is valuable to them at a at a fundamental level. And so if we can, if we could do that and if we could embrace the idea of being vulnerable to other people within medicine, I think
0: that would help. That's beautiful. I mean, that's really lovely. I'm I'm glad that you struggled over coming to that. But it was <laughs> there, it was there all along. Well, and and I think, you know, to your point about physician suicide, honestly, that's why. We started our peer support group because, you know, this stuff comes up and it's oftentimes having been in the same position, you know, it's sort of like you've walked in those shoes. And as a peer, I can understand where you've been. I know when we've also done debriefs with our critical incident stress management team, one of the things that's so unique about those events is the people that are in the room were the people that were in the room. So it was a shared experience that almost no one else can appreciate that wasn't there. And for them to share that is incredibly powerful and helpful. And having done them enough times, they go the same way. They say the same things. They tell the stories, that, how it made them feel. And then there's this kind of, we did the best we could, and everybody did their part and thanking each other. And I think if physicians were able to do that more to let down our guard and be vulnerable, it would help because I think when you're armored up that, you know, I can't, I can't be fallible, Mm -hmm. then, you know, then you are trying to be superhuman, which we aren't. Mm -hmm. So that's that's lovely. So my final question, and this one might cause a little consternation also, is if you (laughs) could go back and give yourself some advice when you were your younger you, what would you say?
1: I mean, that's a big one. That's, I mean, my younger self made some, you know, some poor choices like everyone else in their, their younger days. This is something that actually was told to me, but by, by my father at one point, but something that I think I had forgotten along the way. And he said, when, and you know, I, I don't even actually remember if he said this or if somebody else said it, somebody in my life said this to me that when it's time to work, work, when it's time to play, play. And I think that that, that ought to guide more of our lives, that when we work, we work and we're done working, we can be done with work. And I mean, it sounds so, so trivial, but it's something that I think that we forget a lot. And it reminds me of this, this nurse that I loved at UCLA where I did my training that she, I mean, she was, I think that she had been as a critical care, she worked in the transplant critical care unit where they did, uh, livers and lungs, I think were, were the organs. I mean, very, very sick patients there for a long time. If your, your liver transplant and your lung transplant doesn't go well, it really doesn't go well. And the patients are there for months, and very sick. And she was the happiest, like joyous person. And she'd worked nights at this really intense unit for, I think like 28 or 29 years when I knew her. And I said, one day I, I had had a couple of bad days in a row and I was down and, and i saw her and she hugged me and i you know i'm not a hugger so she assaulted me with this tug and you know embraced me and you know said how are you doing and i said how do you do this this is day in and day out like you are smiling you're laughing i can hear you down the hallway loving on people like how do you do this and she said no it, i haven't always been able to do it but one thing that has really helped me is when i when i go out the when i leave at the end of my ship, you know, at, at the, the hospital where there's a big, beautiful atrium and a revolving door and, you know, paintings and statues and stuff. And she said, I always go out the side entrance because it's a swinging door and I can push my way out of it. And I can turn around and I can close that door behind me. And when I close that door behind me, it's a way for me to turn off work and I can go about the rest of my day. And when I come back in, I open that door and walk back in. And it was to her, it was almost this this talisman, almost this touchstone. That reminded her that when it's time to work, you work, and when it's time to play, you play. It was just really beautiful and something that I it sticks
0: with me. I love that. I, I think of Mister Rogers, you know, coming coming home, you know, changing his shoes, putting on a sweater. And I I spoke with Dr. Sarah Brown, who is a child abuse expert, and I asked her the question, "How how do you do this? I mean, this is so painful." And she said. I see myself as one of the helpers and I do, I, I help as much as I can, but I, I, you know, I have to walk away from it and knowing that I'm doing my, my part. And I, I thought that was really lovely. So I, I think that's a a great place to end, to think about, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, being able to put it away. Cause I think it's hard when you bring that stuff home and, you know, your family, you know, it doesn't really help when it sort of bleeds into, sorry for the of the analogy, but you know, and it bleeds into your, every aspect of your life. You can't shake it loose.
1: Yeah. And maybe ending in the same place we started, it it takes a good spouse. It takes somebody who understands, you know, not the intricacies of my job because that's, you know, that's neither her interest nor her, her role, but you know, I can come home and I can say, you know what, it it was, it was a bad one today. And, And she knows what that means and she knows what I need. And you know, I can come home and say, you know, what I've I've used up all my words today. That's kind of our our phrase is I don't have anything left to give. And then she yeah. knows that you know this is this is the time that you know she she needs to take a a, a more active role with the girls and you know my, our our children and you know being able to have somebody to to open up to and be vulnerable to in that way, and and not share every detail because it's not it's not her burden to bear, um, right. but to be able to to have somebody who knows enough to, to be able to help you out in those tough days.
0: Well, and I think in this last year, I I think we can appreciate more than ever that whether it's a a spouse, partner, friend, family, whoever, that we need, we need each other. We need people. We're not, you know, solitary beings. This is, Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're social animals and that's, how we survive is by depending on other people. And this year has really been a huge challenge to do that. But mm-hmm. I I love that coming home and saying I have no words and just mm-hmm. you know for her to say, okay.
1: Yeah. I, I'm I, not gonna
0: I, I'm not gonna ask you for more then. That's great. Yeah.
1: And sometimes I'll text on the way home. I've I've used up all of my words for the
0: day. Oh, that's <laughs> she a,
1: knows what that means.
0: I may have to borrow that. The other one I really yeah. love my daughter my daughter came up with was If, if things get difficult or struggle, it's like same team, you know, we're, we're all on the same team together. We're doing this together. And and I think that whether it's your professional team or your home team, so, Mm -hmm. well, thank you so much for your insights and wisdom. And I mean, this was great. And I wish that I had had the foresight to called you before, because there are so many situations in my head. I'm like, oh my God, if I had talked to somebody about this, it would have helped me so much because otherwise I was you know, just trying to do the best I could by myself. And I, I loved what you said about, you know, this isn't the first time this has ever happened. (laughs) You know, this isn't unique. So, so thank you for the work you do.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate this, uh, your opportunity to chat and and, and the good work that you're doing through your podcast.
0: Well, thanks so much. And I will make sure that I put in the show notes that you also have a podcast for those that are interested in bioethics. And so I'll put some links there as well. Well, thanks thanks again, Tyler, and be well. Thank you. I want to thank Dr. Gibb for this conversation, which I think was really an interesting foray into humanities, ethics, and the intersect with the practice of medicine. I think we know at our core that what we do really touches on the soul of humans, But I think sometimes we get lost in the day-to-day work that we do. So I really appreciated the conversation. And here are my takeaways. Number one, bioethics is the meta-ethics and focuses on the theoretical. Number two, clinical medical ethics brings theory into practice. Number three, as a consultant, Tyler asks why. For example, why is this decision a concern versus another decision And then follow with how. How is this case different from other similar cases? And then he develops concrete, meaningful next steps. And I can see so many situations where this would be really helpful. Having an outside person really help pick apart what's going on. Number four, in medicine, the conundrum can be distilled into what we should do versus what we can do. And the answers may be very different. Number five, COVID was especially challenging as doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, and nurses were pushed to their limits. Ethical considerations and issues rose to the top and became familiar, and I think this really brought ethics into the limelight. He talked about the ethics of allocation of scarce resources and precious resources, and the decisions at times were soul-crushing. Such as, you know, who's going to get this very precious vial of medication that will save a life when not all can get it? And how do we make that decision? Number six, ethical dilemmas often arise within medical teams when individuals don't agree. Other dilemmas may center around families as they grapple with decision making, you know, such as information sharing and conflicting opinions. And here's where an ethicist can really help. And again, I think this is something we need to keep in mind that we don't have to make these decisions alone. Number seven, in primary care, we constantly face ethical dilemmas, and I don't think we really always think about that. And we may not think to reach out to an ethicist. So given this, con- this conversation, you know, call. Consider things like custody issues, chronic illness, confidentiality, And sometimes when the decisions of adolescents and children may conflict with the decisions of parents, I really wish I had thought to call. Number eight, when you are conflicted, remember, this is not a de novo dilemma. This has happened before to other people. It's not a unique situation, but it may be unique for you. And just know you are not alone in your struggle. Number nine, the burden you feel can be shared. I love that. Number 10, be vulnerable, ask for help. I think this is really important in medicine, and especially for trainees where I think we're trying to prove ourselves. It's really, really important to be able to say, I don't really know, but let me find out more about that, and reaching out to other colleagues. Number 11, find your moral voice and train yourself to hear the moral voices of others. I wish all of us could do this because sometimes I wonder if we've lost our moral compass, but I know that those of us in medicine really care about doing the right thing for our patients. Number 12, and I love this takeaway, when it is time to work, work, and when it is time to play, play. Preserve and protect your humanity by you know, making these boundaries around the work that you do and stepping away from it. And I likened it to Mr. Rogers putting on his cardigan and changing into his tennis shoes. Sometimes we might have to make that mental break to say, I'm I'm done being a helper, and now it's time for me to be with my family, do the things I love, and refresh my mind. Thank you for all the really hard work that you do day in, day out. And I hope this conversation was helpful to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.